Hello, sports film fans, and thank you for joining us today for the 129th edition of Scoring at the Movies. We dissect sports movies on this channel, and we spoil them, so be aware of that right off the bat. I'm the guy who was never much of a roller skater, and who always sounds defeated when he's talking to his boss, Ryan E. Ellis. And here's the soft-spoken superstar whose fame has earned him a privilege card, and whose right hook is literally deadly, literally deadly, Chris DiGregorio. Literally. Thanks, Ryan. You know, I figured for this very special recording, I would forego my usual helicopter mode of transportation to get over here to your mm -hmm. place, and instead I traveled with the team. Which did prove to be a big mistake, given the traffic in your area, I right. discovered. But nonetheless... <laughs> and now they're going to kill you for I got it. here. The other thing I forewent, I suppose, in advance of this recording, and I kind of wish I hadn't, is I didn't take any of my happy pills today. So I am stone-cold sober <laughs> and thinking clearly, which, when it comes to this movie, I think is not a good thing. <laughs> we'll continue adding to that by not drinking alcohol. I assume there's nothing alcohol-wise yeah, in my, that right there. My decaf green tea and caffeine sugar-free Coke. Yeah, I knew the, what the Coke was. I wasn't sure what was in the thermos. I just got water, so go ahead, crack that open. Or no, I'm is... way ahead of you. I needed all the you happy juice I could get. Okay. I have one question for you, Ryan. What the hell did we watch? It is such a well-made movie. Is it? Oh, wait, technically? technically? Yeah, yeah, okay, technically, okay. absolutely. The set right. design. It won awards. I think the BAFTA yeah, production I design. I won't argue with production design. And the game is yeah. pretty cool. They made it up. I wasn't sure yes. if it was a game that already existed, and I guess not. And they apparently played it on this track that they built yep. over in Germany. They wanted a round building, and then they built the track inside. All the games are in the same place. They just made it look different for Tokyo, Houston, and... Did they go to New York, or are they in Houston at the end? Anyway, it's supposed to be two or three different tracks, and they're different places, but it's not. It's the same place. So all that's impressive. The offices, meaning John Houseman's office and his house, I guess his house is not that unusual and that futuristic. Of course, the movie's now in the past because it's set in 2018. Yeah. And that was 43 years into the future from when the movie was made. All that is top notch. The performances, James Conn isn't really doing anything in this role. <laughs> no. but I read that he didn't really know what to do with the character. He had no little he could do with it. John Houseman's quite good, I think, as the bad Houseman guy. Houseman is fun, yeah. And the women are pretty solid in the screen time they have. His buddy's good. But I didn't really give any kind of poop but what was going on. I've seen this yeah. before. It's been a long time. And at the end, I'll tell you right now, this was nominated for the AFI's Top 100 Cheers. It's got to be because Why? of the ending, because of the whole stand your ground and give it to the man, stick it to the man, right? And he does. A, they're probably going to kill him yeah, or make him quit. You can try all you want to to play in the sport. They don't have to let you suit up. Yeah. But his future is over in this. And look at all the people that died. But I think it's supposed to be one of those kinds of movies that says, look at him standing his ground and fighting for everything and proving to everybody that there is a reason to be individualistic in this future world, which is why they invented Rollerball, to not give people that impression. Yeah. I didn't dislike it, but I didn't like it either. The set design and the production, a lot of that was cool. I thought the envisioning of the future, and you kind of touched on this when you were talking about his house. Realistic future. Kind of. Not the Jetsons. But I think, aside from the fact that I do agree with you, I cared not at all by the end of the movie about anything, really. People died. Yawn. Yeah, right? 
part of what I enjoyed and what I was looking forward to in this movie about 1970s visions of dystopian future kind of stuff, like we saw in Running Man as an example. And I know that was not 70s, but similar kind of concept. Yeah, Logan's Run was the same time Logan's frame as Run's this. a great example. Some of the same things going on, as I recall. Yeah, I love to see the always flawed, but still fun nonetheless, visions of the future. Yeah. And in this one, they basically just took the 70s, maybe added a few more television screens in the place, and that's it, right? Because all the fashion is straight up disco 70s. Most of the haircuts are. All the haircuts are. There's no super advanced tech. So it felt like a very lazy interpretation of the future, which disappointed me. I don't get the cheers thing at all. If you're meant to care about the Johnny character, James Conn. Johnny. Yeah, Johnny. I like I Jonathan. Do. He's always called Jonathan, so specific. I know, but I prefer John E. Okay. Right? I do agree with you. I think part of what Norman Jewison was trying to do is individualism has a place in this dystopian future. Don't let yourself be a sheep to commercialism or whatever. Or to violent sport or whatever he was trying to rag on. But Jonathan has more or less at this point willingly murdered people himself or caused his teammates to be murdered. Mm -hmm. Because rather than say, oh, you mean you're going to sacrifice us to this without time limit game, basically play until we're all dead. To make him either die or quit. Yeah. So they wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for him refusing to quit. And not just his team, but the other team too. Rather than myself walk away, quit, and then find like another avenue to fight this corporate entity that I seemingly hate, I'm going to instead be a stubborn ass about it and get all these other people killed. It's the definition of a Pyrrhic victory. When you might win, but the losses incurred for you to win are so great that it's meaningless. And that's kind of how I felt about this. What did you accomplish, dude? Because the other element of it too is... I know we get the scene earlier in this movie where you've got the John Houseman character saying, well, we can't just kill him. Why not? The whole premise of this movie anyway is that people have been turned into such mindless sheep by this game that they can't think for themselves. If you kill them, they're probably not going to care. And anyway, if you've just changed the rules so that there's no time limit, then you're pretty much just broadcasting to anyone who's thinking anyway that you're trying to kill him in the game regardless. So it seems like a pointless argument. These people are meant to be so all-powerful that you're right. Even with this last act of defiance, they're still going to find a way to stick it to John E. anyway at the end. So, great, you got a bunch of people killed. You got people to chant your name one last time. Congrats. And now you're dead. And it was all for nothing. Well, I keep on saying they're going to kill him. Maybe they won't, actually, because John Houseman, when he walks out, the last scene he has, he doesn't say anything, but he walks out of the game and he's in a huff because they're cheering because Jonathan scored the only goal and did win the game. Maybe he feels like, oh, now he's too big and we can't do anything about this. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's the logic there. He did exactly what we didn't want him to do and give these people hope. You might be right about that. But then if that's also the case, then to me that contradicts the whole premise, or at least what I understood of a lot of the premise leading up to that final roller derby match, or roller ball match rather, which was that these corporations have successfully brainwashed the entire populace into basically not caring about anything except their comfort and about this game. Yeah, this is the only game that they seem to watch or play. Right. So if, or if you play, obviously, but most of them watch this and look how bloodthirsty they are. I think this is a play on yeah. football, too. Oh, absolutely. Maybe even more true now than it was, what's this, 40... I can't do the math. <laughs> Almost 50 years ago, I guess, 1975? No, I think you're right. And I think you are also correct in saying it's more true to football now than it was then. One thing we do see in these rollerball players is they accept that they're likely going to get hurt. Right? Look at the scars on Khan's shoulders. Exactly. And on Moonpie's face, right. he's got the big scar down the face. So they go into this with eyes wide open. They know the risks. And I think in the 70s, football players obviously weren't anywhere near as knowledgeable about things like CTE mm. and brain injuries in particular. 
I feel more sympathy towards those players in the 70s who are sacrificing their body more or less in ignorance than I do now, largely because they should be educated enough to make those conscious decisions to say, I know this is dangerous for me, but I'm going to do it anyway for whatever my reasons might be. But they get paid more now, though, too. Absolutely, that's true. I feel similarly about the players in this movie. I don't feel for them because they're playing the game, because they're doing it willingly. And we're made to see several times how well treated they are relative to the normal people mm-hmm. as a result of that. So, okay, you make those conscious deci- decisions, rather, then cool. Go forth and be merry. Right? They're like in Spartacus when Kirk Douglas and the other guys are given women to sleep with yes. and treated like gods. But their job is at some point to die and at least to engage in violence. That's right. And that's actually a very apt comparison because we see in this movie, James Conn's character is literally given a woman to sleep with in the form of Daphne when his previous girlfriend disappears. In the beginning of the movie, he had a girlfriend who was not his wife. Before the start of this movie, his wife had been taken away from him. He says a corporate guy. Executive wander. And that guy is cheating on her. Yeah. She mentions... He has a lover? Yeah. Just offhandedly? So he wanted this woman, beautiful woman that she was, Maude Adams, who was in a couple of Bond movies, including... Oh, that's who she was. Well, she's yeah. Octopussy, an she Octopussy. Yeah. And she was also, I think, the man with the golden gun. You want her probably for her looks more than anything else. And then, well, I guess this is typical, right? Maybe this is another commentary in this film. Maybe the notion is that, yeah, she was hot for a while, but then I got tired of her, and now I've got a 22-year-old. Yeah, I agree with you. And maybe that's why Jonathan has no emotions at all. He does have some emotions sometimes, but generally has no emotions at all. Yeah, and you know, your capsule off the top describing yourself as the guy perpetually terrified of his boss, or deferential at least, that was a reference to Jonathan, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, I thought so. You kind of split the character between the two of us. but Yeah, yeah. we both got to be Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, because the thing that kills me about Jimmy Kahn just in general and his career, he made this career in the 70s in particular. He was big in the 70s. Yeah, and as like a tough guy, mm-hmm. macho dude. Not Godfather, like, great example of that. Absolutely. And not action hero tough, but just a tough mm-hmm. dude. Which is ironic because, A, he's not a big dude. He's like 5'9 tops, Mm -hmm. and it's well documented that he used lifts in in a lot of his roles so he wouldn't appear so short. He loves telling the story that he got the Italian-American of the year after The Godfather, but he's Jewish. Yeah, it's a good story. I'd love that, too. And in this movie in particular, he is meant to be a tough guy. And I say this understanding, you don't have to be the biggest person on a field, whether it's football, whether it's hockey or anything else. But outside of the rollerball rink... We get zero evidence that this guy is in any way tough, right? Because like you said, he's constantly emotionless. He's defeated. Defeated way, that's right. Except when he plays rollerball. And the one, <laughs> he can't be defeated. The only other scene we get where he's not defeated and shows any emotion is when he beats up Daphne. And he's like, oh, mm. look how tough I am by beating up this very slender woman. Mm. Uh, good job. There's buddy. a little bit of emotion when he meets with his old friend and old coach who's now an executive with Energy Corporation is what they're called. It's not even spelled weird. I looked on Wikipedia. It's just spelled energy. I would have thought it'd be some kind of NRG or something. But Cletus. The slack-jawed yokel. <laughs> not Cletus slack-jawed yokel. Moses Gunn, who was in Shaft. And that guy, I think, is with Mackie. Barbara Hensley. Hensley? Yeah, Hensley. That's Sorry, right. Pamela Hensley. I think I missed that character. I thought they were to get the woman that is in the place with a black guy. So Mackie is the woman. Are they meant to be an item? I thought they were. Maybe I'm wrong, though, because A, Jonathan looks at videos of her later, more than a game, just two weeks ago. They have all that candid footage, but then people do shoot themselves on tape and whatnot. There's nothing like that for me. (laughs) When I was a kid, there are pictures, but there are no videos. But there's so many videos of these people just doing things, riding horses, (laughs) being around each other. He's got his wife on camera this way, and he deletes that at the end when he's mad at her and they're truly over. Did you enjoy Also a video of Mackie, though, too, and I got the impression that he was either with Mackie or wanted to be. You could be right. But I thought she was with Cletus. Maybe I'm wrong. 
I took very little from this movie from a relationship standpoint, except as it related to James Caan's character, mm-hmm. because we spend basically the whole movie following him around. James Caan's very passive-aggressive way of telling his ex-wife that he's no longer interested. And incidentally, it's not her fault. She is as much a pawn in this as he is. So when he says to her, are you my grand prize? If I agree to walk away, I get you back and that's it. Isn't that what he wanted? Mm -hmm. That's what he complains about the whole movie. And then when it's in front of him, all he has to do is retire from this infinitely dangerous sport. And he's already been promised he'll be showered with wealth by the company and get his wife back. And he's like, peh. Yeah. No. <laughs> okay. Man of principle? Sure. Maybe Jewison realizes the irony and the hypocrisy in this character then. Maybe he doesn't really like the character that much. It could be. Without making that obvious, I would think that in a movie like this, you're not supposed to come away with it feeling, well, done again. It's not their fault they were nominated for the Cheers list many years later, many no, decades later. But if they thought they were an inspiring movie, and then the AFI thought they were an inspiring movie, then either Jewison was being very sly, or he didn't dislike his character like I just suggested. Maybe he did. And if he didn't, then we're saying that the movie didn't really work. I think that's what I'm saying. But if he's playing against that and he's actually not really a fan of his own lead character, then I think there's some working going on here. It does work better. You brought up something interesting there I want to touch on. But the whole reason I brought up that sequence with his ex-wife is because when he clicks on the erase button, it did that very fun thing from the 70s. 70s, 80s movies couldn't envision the way computers would work at all. And you just click erase and it's gone. Essentially, it flashes to the inverse colors and flashes up Mm. erasing, erasing, erasing. Okay, so that's like wiping an analog tape, right? Where it has Mm -hmm. like run the whole tape through Mm -hmm. like magnets or something. In terms of Jewison's interpretation of the James Conn character, whether or not he liked it, and I think there's something to that. Or thought he was a hero, at least. I keep on saying like, maybe that's a better way of putting it. Does he think his hero of the movie is a hero? No, I think... And you don't think he is, and I think I agree with you, but what does he think? We don't know. We could ask Jewison, he's still alive, and he's a Canadian, he's not too far from here, apparently. Hey, Norman, we want to license this from right. you. He got mad because he invented this to be like a condemnation yeah. of violent sport. Jewison didn't like the sport, so I'm extrapolating that to James Caan's character. So I think we're meant to see James Caan in this movie as the protagonist, but not as a hero. He's meant to be a little bit of a contemptible figure because he's not just willingly participating in this sport. When he's told to walk away from it, he still wants to do it. The brutish element of humanity, I think. That fits the mid-70s ethos then too it's a de niro and taxi driver kind of thing. yes de niro right. is a villain he was on the afi's heroes and villains list for the travis bickle character yeah but he's the guy we follow the entire film i don't think you have very many scenes at all if maybe you don't have any scenes without him in them the movies from his point of view that was the year after this well he is a killer this guy's a killer though too the whole point of even a normal game of rollerball seems to be very violent because they have these gloves that are so strong that when Moon Pie gets rabbit punched by the guy, he never wakes up again. He's in a coma and never wakes I don't think he's ever going to wake up either. No. Now, that would hurt. But somebody punching you in the back of the head shouldn't put you in a coma for the rest of your life, especially a big, strong guy like this. But the guy's wearing this powerful glove. And you see all of them do it. Con especially backhands somebody. And they go down when that happens. They're very bloody. Yeah. Well, so the ball is really powerful and strong itself, but heavy, so are their yeah. gloves. And that was also illustrated in that scene I mentioned where Khan threatens and beats up Daphne. Again, somebody who I would argue is as much a cog in this machine as James Khan is and is not herself responsible for the things that the corporation is trying to get him to do. So mm-hmm. when he holds that glove to her face, it's meant to cut along her cheek. Right. And it doesn't look like he's pressing into her cheek. He just brushes it. Yeah, it's probably very heavy, like metal lined or something, but also very sharp. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a deadly game just in a regular game before they start altering the rules. Mm. Oftentimes with movies like this, you and I interpret them differently. I'm much more demanding of the director to not necessarily fill in every little blank, but at least give me a coherent structure 
what do you want me to take away from this movie? Don't make me have to write a whole thesis of what this is all about because you're trying to be intentionally vague. So to me, this felt like a first-year university student film assignment. Give me a short film about a dystopian future. 20 minutes, go. Jewison took that. Contact sports to numb the masses. Consumerism run rampant. Uh, political structures collapsed. Bam, done. And somebody's like, oh, that sounds good, Norman. Make that a feature film. He's like, oh, crap. I wrote it for 20 minutes. That's okay. We'll just stretch it out. If you do the plot beats of this movie... It's it's over two hours long. It's a long movie. It's a long movie. And what happens? You get the first rollerball match where you meet James Caan. You meet the teammates a little bit. Shortly after that, he's told to retire. He says no. Then you're treated to really long extended scenes of very slothful parties and Mm -hmm. stuff for a long period of time. Not much else happens. Second game happens. He still won't retire. Nothing else really happens. Mm -hmm. The wife comes back briefly. Third game happens. Movie's over. That was two hours? Mm. How the hell was that two hours? <laughs> this might be the least eventful movie of all the movies we've covered in this podcast, and that's saying something. Considering the actual events are more brutal than anything else we've witnessed, I think, it's in the entire weird. podcast so far. Yeah. Well, let's go back and I'll introduce everything here. Deadly Roller Skating was released by United Artists, back when they were still big, on June 25th, 1975. The film was not a mega smash, but it earned a nice bit of money that summer. People did go see it. The Rotten Tomatoes numbers are positive. 69% of them like the film. Really? 6.2 to 10 is the average. There are 35 reviews on the site. And 61% of audiences. The remake John McTiernan did with Chris Klein and I forget, Jean Renault, I forget who else is in that, maybe Rebecca Romaine. That has 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. I saw that movie in the theater when it came out. Did I you? was 21. It okay. was terrible. <laughs> yeah, I think it was too. <laughs> Even I then, I, I thought I feel it was like terrible. I saw it too. I don't remember for sure. And 14% from the audiences. As for the original Rollerball, The Numbers, so that's a website called The Numbers. Box Office Mojo doesn't go back as far as 75. But The Numbers has it 11th that year. Jaws was, of course, far and away the number one hit. Cuckoo's Nest was number two, also a mega smash. I mentioned before this won the BAFTA Award for the sets, and it had several other nominations, but no Oscar nominations. And then the AFI lists, I already said, The Cheers, also the Top 100 Thrills. Okay, I guess I'll buy that one. And the Top 100 Genres, but not in the sports category, in the sci-fi category. Oh, that's weird. It's actually. an interesting sci-fi movie because it isn't 2001 or Star Wars, nothing like those kinds of films. And we already said it, that for the most part, it's realistic the way this future is set. It isn't that different from the 70s. Because yeah. how different is our world now from the 70s, if you really think about it, in major ways? Yeah, people that were just transported here from that time frame would be amazed by computers, but they'd probably grasp the concept of them pretty fast. Oh, yeah. The cars have, would seem... They have they're computers, not, they're, they're, right? The cars aren't that different from the 70s. I don't think no. the style is. And, of course, the mileage, those kinds of things are different. Television existed. Radio existed. The internet didn't. That's a big difference. But I think yeah. they could understand how that could ever happen. When I complain that it felt like a lazy job of envisioning the future... I don't ever expect a film from the 70s to accurately predict flat screen televisions or computer screens or the way the internet would evolve necessarily or computers themselves. That's fine. I get that they used punch cards in the 60s and 70s, and that's why they thought, okay, well, this is the way computers are going to continue to be. This is also at the same point when computer scientists, I mean, the mid-70s, were predicting that computers would get twice as powerful every 10 years and they'd fill up whole rooms and only the richest people in the world would right, have they get them, right? bigger, not smaller. Yeah. I agree with your assessment of like how different are things, but at the same time, things look very different. We're not sitting here in huge collared shirts with bouffant hairstyles and unbuttoned shirts down to our navels and everything. Okay, true. I don't care what your prediction is as a filmmaker, but if you're saying this movie's 40 years in the future, more or less, then change the style somehow. 
give everybody silvery jumpsuits or something like they did in a lot of those 1950s sci-fi movies. I don't care what it is. It's and just movies about conforming. You think there'd be a lot more people, maybe not everybody, but a lot more people that are dressed like that or dressed the same, whatever they're wearing, the same. If fashion doesn't evolve over time, and it might repeat, we see mm. fashions come back. But if it doesn't evolve, then every person in 1975 would be wearing the zoot suits of 1935, right? Mm. It's the same effect as nobody in this 2018 looking any different than the real people would have looked in 1975. So that felt lazy to me. But otherwise, I do agree with you. Stuff doesn't change all that much. The other major logical fallacy that stuck out to me in this, though, I understand that Jewison was making a not very subtle condemnation about consumerism. James Kahn and his ex-wife have this explicit argument in it. Jewison was the issues guy. Yeah. Most of his career, because he had made In the Heat of the Night. I don't know if Moonstruck's really an issues movie. And then also we cover The Hurricane. That's a big time issues movie. Black Man's Railroaded. Goes to jail for, I think, decades, isn't it? Yes. Love busted him out. I think we both really like The Hurricane, Mm -hmm. right? And I would argue I liked it a heck of a lot more than this movie, for sure. I don't really want to watch that one again, but I think I'd rather watch that than this. Yes, agreed. I liked Jewison, but I never really loved any of his movies. I've covered quite a few of them. Two with you now, and at least two with Bev, because Bev and I did In the Heat of the Night. That was on the AFI's list many years ago. And we also covered Moonstruck, because it's one of our favorites. We did that maybe six or seven years ago. One of the reasons I don't love, from what I've seen of him, and this movie is maybe the starkest example of it to me, because if he is an issues guy, it seems so ham-fisted. If you as a filmmaker, Norman Jewison, in 1975, feel like corporate entities are garnering too much power and people are buying in too much of the corporate identity, probably like Coca-Cola and stuff back then, that's fair. And we've seen that only get worse with time, right? You could even say that he wasn't far off because these megalithic companies that exist now, they bought up a lot of the smaller ones. And you can point towards the tech giants, but you can also point towards restaurant companies buying each other up. Department stores. Uh, Walmarts of the world. All that stuff is true. I don't understand why anyone would think, though, that companies are going to take over the world and run things. But they have, in reality. Yes. Why would they explicitly say, yeah, guys, politics is no longer a thing. Governments don't exist. We run the show now. Because that puts you in the firing line. Why would you do that when you could just make untold profit from behind the scenes like they do in reality like now. they do in the reality okay, you're saying. there's no danger of them being regulated out of existence because we see how effective corporate lobbying is right so they effectively run the policy making behind yeah. the scenes anyway look at the housing crisis you think something would have come of that and That's only right. one person went to jail and yeah. i don't even remember his name and i guarantee you no one else well somebody does but very few people know who that even was it wasn't even like a top dog it was like a mid-level manager type mm-hmm. dude from one of the banks. i think it's because they weren't actually breaking the law that was the crime that was the scandal i should say yeah. And I like Obama a lot, but his biggest failing was not dealing with that. And it's partly because those kinds of people were big donors to him. He wasn't going to go after big business, the big banks anyway, when he's in office because of them as much as anything else. Yeah. Doesn't make him evil, but that's, I think, the reality. There's been recent repercussions of that failure of bringing back some of the more stringent regulations on banks in recent days in the States, where we've seen bank failures as an ongoing one with First Republic Bank right now. Mm. So I agree with you. To present things in as ham-fisted a way as this movie does, it's not convincing, it's not realistic, and it doesn't really effectively argue a point. What is the point you're trying to make, Norman Jewison, that you want everybody to be more individualistic? What does that look like? Does it look like being like a selfish jackass like James Caan's character in this? Well, movies have done that so many times over. Yeah. You be yourself, and that's the message in the end. There may be multiple messages. This movie has multiple messages, but that is the biggest one of all is you got to be you and go against the grain. And even if that sure. means people get hurt or killed, then you got to be you. That's been in so many films. And it's such a flawed message. 
And we've, in this we, case, it sure is. But we've also very recently touched on a similar thing with Chariots of Fire, right? Where you're meant to be like, yeah, man, a principal, go, go, go. I'm like, you're selfish. You had every opportunity to work your way around this problem. And rather than doing so, you blindly bold your way forward and then refuse to bend. And that's individualistic and that's sticking true to your principles, but that's not necessarily a laudable thing. If those principles are misguided, as I think I would argue they were in that movie, and I think you agreed with me on yep. that. And in this case... I would argue the same thing because I've already said the way that the movie ends to me feels like at best a Pyrrhic victory for James Conn. And he indirectly got people killed. Well, he directly killed people in that final match. Well, that too. But I mean, the reason why this is happening this way is because of him. Yes, that's right. Yes, they're the ones that made the rules. I just got finished watching a movie called Key Largo, which I'll be covering next week on my other podcast. Is that a 1940s? 1948, yeah. I think I've seen that, yeah. I watched that just before you got over here, so I'll cover that next week on my other podcast. Have you ever seen? Somebody blaming themselves for what goes down, people Mm -hmm. get killed. And then somebody else pipes up and says, no, the bad guy in this movie is the one to blame, which of course is true. Yeah. So in the case of Rollerball, yes, John Hausman and those other executives are the reason why people died. They're the ones that changed the rules and that's why they died. But there's a reason why they changed the rules. And that's why James Conn's at least partly to blame, if not more than he would ever want to believe. Yeah. I wonder what his normal life would be if they don't kill him. What does happen next to Jonathan? Right. All of his teammates are dead. I guess the coaches are alive and that's about it from his side. Yeah. All the New York players, well, no, he didn't kill the one guy. He refused to. That was the big thing. I guess maybe he's going to quit now because it seems to be, it's almost like, here's my last goal. You mean that ball where he's holding yeah. the ball above the guy's head and it's like, nah, you're already crippled. You're good. <laughs> right. You could argue that he's saying, well, this guy's helpless. Okay. When they're skating beside you, they're not helpless, but you had no problem killing them for all the years you've been playing this game or at least hurting them. Yeah. So now this guy's at your feet. I wouldn't want to do it either, but. You're bloodlusting, too. I don't really get why he didn't just do it. But that's another movie convention. In Spartacus, I mentioned that before. The black guy, Woody Strode, I think it is, has Kirk Douglas dead to rights early on the film. And instead of killing him, he throws his spear up at the people in command. He doesn't hit them, and then they kill him because he won't go through with doing his job and killing Kirk Douglas. That is the follow-through on this one, too. He does not quit, and ultimately they're going to kill him, too. What you just described about what happens next or what-ifs of movies generally... I think that's an interesting mental exercise to think through for a movie like this. One that is made by a guy who's all about issues and wants to explore some very deep societal issues, apparently. I think as a movie maker, as a director, a screenwriter, whatever, you're beholden to go through that as a thought exercise when you're making the movie. James Caan does all these things. What next? What happens to him? Right? Or go back a few steps because you already mentioned, yeah... James Conn killed these people, but it's because those people changed the rules, but they changed the rules because of him, right? There's a lot of stepping back and seeing, okay, well, the blame for all these events goes both ways. Well, what if James Conn, when he was told to retire, said, well, I don't want to retire. And the guy said, well, you gotta, or else, you know, we're going to keep doing these things. And James Conn said, well, screw you. I'm not going to retire. And then the corporate dude says, okay, well, we're just going to make the game more deadly. And James Conn says, whoa, okay, never mind. I don't want my friends to get killed. I'll retire. What happens next? He's still a massively famous person. His eyes have been open to the reality of the world, and he wants to awaken the rest of the populace to it. Are there not other ways to do that except playing rollerball? Could you not? (laughs) I don't know. Well, they wouldn't let him do that. They control the message. He wouldn't be able to do that. Maybe not. But one thing I know is if he keeps playing rollerball, they are going to kill him. If he quits, he at least has the opportunity to try something else, yeah. and then maybe they kill him that way too, but then other people aren't dying for James Conn's beliefs. You know, you could argue as a death wish as well, which still, he puts other people in danger for yes. his own death wish, but when he realizes the marriage is fully over and erases her, I like that touch, by the way, 
him saying basically to hell with you by deleting yeah the way they did it was a little bit funky and weird but the <laughs> yeah. notion of deleting a video of her was an original way to do it, it i was, wonder if yeah. maybe why the movie went the way it did is that this was a time frame logan's run's not the only one soiling green was before this silent right. running or runnings as well i think it was the same time as this the omega man planet the apes in some ways yes maybe he felt like okay we could go this way with it but oh they did that and then they did that and then they did that so let's go the different message here in the end yeah and have this tight close-up on our hero at the end of the movie and then leave it open for us to interpret, which you didn't really want, but that's what maybe he's thinking about. He didn't write yeah. this, by the way. It was a guy who wrote an article in, what was it, Saturday Night? Where's my note here? William Harrison. This is his first ever screenplay. He only wrote one other one, did some TV, but he based it on his own 1973 short story that ran an Esquire called Rollerball Murder. The notion of a dystopian future society where everyone is obsessed with sport... I've got no problem with that. We've done Running Man before. I thought that was a lot more fun, a movie to watch. It was. In many ways, goofier. And it also did that thing I talked about where it envisions a future that is at least different than the 1982 or whatever. 87. 87 when it came out. Fun technological advances that weren't in any way accurate to reality, but at least, okay, we're going to take a shot at this. My issues with this, like I said, is A, it felt scattered. I know you want to raise a couple of different issues, then say something meaningful about it. And I don't feel like this movie said much meaningful about any of the issues it raised. It's a cold movie, too. Yeah. And I think it does, whether intentionally or unintentionally, raise issues not just about individuality and consumerism and the barbarism of physical sport. I think it also comments, probably unintentionally, on gender issues because all of the women in this movie are effectively subservient pawns. Yeah. Whether it's the secretaries or the wife or the girlfriends or whatever, to some degree or another, there's also a very racist undertone to this. And I don't know if that's a 70s thing or this movie commenting thing. The nonstop racist comments about the Japanese players. They're Japanese, so guys, you know, they use karate and Mm. hapkido in their... (laughs) Come on, really? (laughs) There's a bunch of different stuff, but I don't feel like any one of them was particularly effectively spoken to, which is not necessarily to say that they were effectively dealt with in rollerball either. I know that was a Stephen King short story, wasn't it? That Running Man, yeah. Running Man, yeah. Did I say Rollerball? I meant Running Man, yeah. But at least A, it was fun, and B, it was very focused on, okay, we've got a totalitarian government, and we've got this game, that's how we control them, period. And there was really no other stuff going on in that movie. This one is more all over the place and not a whole lot of fun to watch. If I don't really care about the characters, do I care about the issues that underpin the movie? I'd argue probably not. That's always a problem. Yeah. By the way, I should have done the nutshell a while ago when sure. we were talking about Jonathan specifically, but I'll do it right now. This is a little bit out of nowhere, but I saw it in my notes. So in a nutshell, for Rollerball, think of Ross and Friends. Hi. <laughs> Jonathan is Ross from Friends, the early years of Friends. Yeah, yes. There's so much of this, I guess the whole film almost, except when he's playing the game and a little bit of time he spends with Cletus and Mackie in Cletus's place. Hi. <laughs> that might be the most spot-on <laughs> nutshell you've ever done. I'm only going to be able to picture Photoshop Ross into like scenes of Rollerball now. There's no better way to describe his character in this movie, at least to an audience of our age, because you might say this to someone who's 20 now and they have no clue what they're talking about with friends back in the day, but oh, apparently people love friends, even young people that never saw really? it on before. I think it's huge on Netflix and probably on who has the rights to it? one of the streaming services does now, I guess. Oh, I'm but anyway, apparently it's very big. Okay, on streaming and just TV. It's on TV all the time. It's like yeah. Seinfeld. It's on somewhere every single day. If Ross in early seasons of Friends partook in violent death sport and wore groovy 1970s clothes unzipped to the navel just to prominently display the prodigious chest hair Mm -hmm. that he has 
then yeah, that would be James Conn's character in Rollerball. And somewhere in there, Schwimmer got jacked. I think he probably could take James Conn. Conn's thought of as a tough guy, but you just said it before, he's not very big. And he's no. not exactly cut in this. He's got a good body for the 70s, but he's not even as cut as someone like, well, I mentioned Heston. Heston, Eastwood yeah. for the most part. Those guys, Eastwood's and a good example. Newman, when he did movies like boxing movies, for example, sure. those guys were in great shape yes. for that time frame. They're not as cut as the guys are now. Almost every actor seems to look like that now. You get a superhero role, Paul Rudd, Chris Pratt. They don't need to be in the kind of shape they are, even Downey, but they were. They were. They weren't like Hemsworth and Evans, but they got incredible shape. Khan's in good shape for this time frame, but I think Schwimmer in his prime could have taken him in a fight. I think so, too. Even though he was so often in that role. Or the maniac. (laughs) James Khan, he is not a physically imposing man, and I find it amusing that he got this rep as a tough guy character actor in the 70s, because in many of the roles, he does portray the characters in this very quiet way. He's not big physically, and he doesn't portray a lot of physical menace. I know there's scenes in Godfather where he does go off. It's like Joe Pesci. Why am I blanking on the name? Well, Goodfellas. Goodfellas, sure. thank you. Yeah, where he's, Casino. He, he's just a straight-up psycho. Now, Pesci's a lot smaller than Khan, but he's believable when he oh, threatens yeah. you. You feel like, well, he has a gun, for one thing, but you feel like, yeah, I think he maybe could take a lot of these guys out who are a foot taller than he is. Yeah, he's unhinged, right? And mm-hmm. the thing that has stuck with me my entire life, my father always told me stories when I was younger, because he was a lawyer, was my father. He did some criminal law stuff. He'd met a lot of people in the course of his professional career, and nobody scared him more than one of his clients that was five foot six, 150 pounds soaking wet kind of guy. He was not anywhere close to the most physically imposing person he'd ever met. But he asked this guy once, you're going to jail, aren't you scary? He's like, no, what are they going to do? What's the worst they can do to me? They're going to kill me? Well, if they're not going to kill me, I'm going to keep fighting until they do kind of thing. Mm. Like, he was the kind of guy that had zero fear. And this is what you described with Pesci in movies like Goodfellas. I don't care how much smaller he is than everyone around him. He's got more fight in him, and Mm. he has less fear in him than anyone else, and that makes him terrifying. I don't get any of that from James Caan, and we don't need him to be like psycho-level fearful, but for a guy in this kind of movie that is meant to be the king of the hill in this very violent sport, you kind of want to see a little bit more oomph, don't you, than just, all right, guys, let's go play this game now. Yay. It sounds like he wasn't trying, Bev and other people for that matter, but Bev wasn't a huge fan of him in Misery. And people were questioning that casting when it happened and then when they yeah. saw the movie. I think Misery is great, especially Kathy Bates. Yes, she and is. And I think he's fine in that role. You see the names they thought about casting and some of them would have been probably better choices. But it was so different for him to play a role where he has to lay in bed most of the time. But then at the end when he does get physical, okay, finally Jimmy Conn can let loose. So maybe he was miscast in that. But I don't know. I think in the Godfather time frame, I think he is a believable not so much a nut, but a violent guy, a guy who will resort to violence. Michael is the war veteran. He doesn't resort to violence physically almost ever. He gets other people to do it through most of his time as a mafia hood. Well, he does kill two guys before he's actually in the family. But it's Sonny that you worry about more so, of course. Yeah. Commas and Brian's song, which is a football movie. That was one of the things that would make him famous. It was a TV movie with Billy Dee Williams, I think, played the other guy. So he's Brian in Brian's song. And Gail Sayers is who Billy Dee is playing. He had to learn how to roller skate, obviously. They all did. And these stuntmen, they're in the credits, which was not a common thing back then, apparently, because they had so many people that had to do the stunts. But Khan mm-hmm. himself had to learn how to roller skate, at least well enough in a lot of the shots. He looked fine doing mm-hmm. it, I thought. But if he's an athlete for playing football in school and then in Brian's song, it yeah. makes sense. It helps. So yeah. he's well cast in that sense. Also, he's an elf. Bev and I covered that a long yeah, time of ago. Course. Maybe miscasting that, too. It seemed like he didn't want to do that movie in a way. Maybe he would say, I was doing what they wrote. Feels like he didn't want to be an elf sometimes as Buddy's dad. Also, we aren't going to cover now because the podcast is ending in a couple of weeks, but he's the coach and the program 
which is 30 oh, years old this that's year. Right. He is, I haven't seen that in a long time. I know I have, but it was a long time ago. John Houseman, who I think is pretty good as Bartholomew, he won an Oscar a couple years before this for a movie called The Paper Chase. He was in Naked Gun, which we covered a few months ago. Was he? Was Very he? briefly, he's a driving instructor in that movie. Oh, he's the, the driving instructor. Now you want to put your signal on here. That scene, he's the driving instructor. We instructs her to slowly raise her middle finger at the window. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now raise your middle finger. Yeah. But he was Orson Welles' guy back in Orson Welles' prime no in the kidding. late 30s, early 40s. Yeah. I mentioned Moses Gunn already, who's also in The Great White Hope, a movie I covered by myself last year. That's right. John Beck is Moon Pie. So he's in about half the movie, I guess. He practically lived on TV screens. I thought maybe he would have done more movies, but nothing really stands out in his resume other than he played Mark Grayson on Dallas. And I was a big Dallas person, so I knew I knew the face and the name. Pamela Hensley, who plays Mackie, was in Buck Rogers. Did you ever see that? That definitely predates no. most people. I, I know, know if I ever saw it even. I know Duck Dodgers. And the 25th and a half century? Better than I know Buck Rogers. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Robert Trentham is Daphne. She only made a few movies in general. I mentioned Maude Adams in the Bond films. And then Ralph Richardson, who plays the librarian, he was in Friday the 13th and The Fugitive, but not those. They might have been English movies because he's an oh, English actor. Oh, I see. Okay. okay I was so looking for that look in your face and I got like, it. He's the librarian. And that's the other thing, too, is that they control the message. Yes. They're making it so there aren't any books anywhere, and they've also altered it, which is what American politicians want to do right now when it comes to things like slavery and other kinds of racism. Yeah. Get rid of books and don't teach anybody anything, especially kids, obviously. So the message is completely changed. That came true from this movie. Sort of, yes. You can say that Jewison accurately predicted some changes like the megacorpse and filtering the message. Yeah, that's fair. But again, it's an idea that this movie throws out there. And it's almost like, well, what do you guys think of this? Corporations. What do you think of this? Sport. What do you think of this? Erasing history, all that. What do you think about that? Never... So you think they're packing too much in then, too? Absolutely, because I don't feel like he really ever offers any specific commentary on any of these things. What comes of this discovery? James Kahn's character, for some reason, decides that he wants to learn about some kind of history. And it was never really clear why that epiphany occurred to him. Didn't he have to go to Switzerland to do that, too? He went to Geneva, ultimately, right? Because that first character that he meets with says, oh, no, we're not a library. We're this kind of thing. So we can give you some things, but you got to go to the main office. I guess he goes to Geneva. Right. And she says, it's a great place to visit. Yeah, it probably would He's be. He's there for a few minutes and the computer malfunctions. Yeah. Zero kick. Zero kick. <laughs> yeah. But after that, nothing really comes of it. It's a very Fahrenheit 451 or whatever yeah. kind of message, right? It's like all books are now gone. They're all controlled instead electronically. And all of those electronic versions have been edited and redacted by the computer. Surely that will lead to something. No, he just discovers this fact and then goes and he plays the last rollerball game. Okay, well, what's the commentary here? That an authoritarian government would control the messaging of their own history? No kidding, Sherlock. That's all of human history. Victors write the story of their successes mm. or failures. Anyone can pitch out a thing and take no position and say, I'm just asking questions here. I'm just asking <laughs> questions, right? He's the like, Joe Rogan of the 70s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm sorry, that's intellectually lazy as a filmmaker, and it's a little bit cowardly, right? If you have something to say about the topic, then say it. I don't fully agree, but I'm 80% of the way there with you. Because I can respect if somebody does do these things. I've always said that, though, or yeah. often said that in this podcast. Yeah. And you're not so cool with that. He, by the way, directed The Cincinnati Kid in the 60s. There's a movie that we would have covered, right. but I could never find it anywhere. It was never on TCM. No, is that right? Record. I can't find it as a DVD. Oh, no kidding. I saw it way back when, before I took up poker as a, a mm -hmm. little bit of a hobby myself. So I'd love to rewatch it, because I'm sure they probably play five-card stud. It's or one of the most famous poker movies of all time. We covered one poker movie, and it was the beginning of this podcast, Rounders. We never did it again. We're both poker fans, especially you. You actually yeah. play, and you go to Vegas sometimes. You sometimes, get, yeah. I would have liked to have covered other cards movies, but we can never find them. I can never find Pool Hall Junkies you wanted to cover oh, that. It's not a great movie, but it's a fun mm -hmm. pool-hustling movie specifically. Not unlike Color of Money, except Color of Money is objectively a better, <laughs> better made movie, but mm -hmm. 
bringing it back to rollerball. This is one of those things where if you say to me, I'm okay with somebody who wants to just ask a question to get people thinking, that's fine. I think I've always been pretty consistent on this podcast to say, I believe movies are a subjective experience and you're going to interpret them differently than I will. And this also applies to basically all media to me, books, music, video. In university, I had professors that would tear me apart if I offered what they viewed as an incorrect interpretation of something that I'd consumed. Isn't the point of discussing these things? I agree with you. Absolutely. I think as a viewer of movies, a reader of books, whatever the case may be, how you interpret that is valid because you've read a thing, you've seen a thing, and you viewed it a certain way. So how can that be wrong? You can say, well, that wasn't the intention of the creator. Yeah. And that's fine. But But how do they even know that, though? They're not talking to the creator, unless maybe in some cases they did. Short of that, you don't know. Well, that's right. And even if you went to them and said, is this what you intended from your material? And the creator said, no, that wasn't my intention. I don't think an individual's interpretation then becomes wrong. It's different. And the way that the creator of whatever it was intended their messaging to be might not have been received the way they intended it. So be it. So if someone were to say to me, I'm cool watching a movie like Rollerball, where there's a bunch of questions thrown out there and really no not even answers, but no real opinions offered on many of them, then okay, it's not for me, but I can see somebody being, it works for me. It did for quite a few people. A lot of people saw this in 75. Yeah. And it was a good year for movies. I mentioned Jaws, of course, Dog Day Afternoon was that year. Cuckoo's Nest was that year. Nashville, great movie was out that year. We've touched on Norman Jewison. He had created this game for Rollerball, and that Mm kind of got me interested a little bit. Really? He did? What did that look like? And so I read a little bit about the whole process of well, he didn't create it. It was the writer Harrison, but but, but he, they yeah collectively this movie created the sport, fleshed it out in such a way that then got licensed in real life and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Right, a lot of viewers of this movie, at least contemporaneously to the release of it, seem to want this to be like a satire more so than a serious movie, as it turned out. Okay, and so I was watching this knowing that that was the case. I'm thinking this is not funny at all. It's not fun. Well, give me a second on okay. that one. I agree with you. It's not intentionally funny. Would it work better as a satire than it did as the serious version of it? And no, I don't think it would. I disagree with that as the critics or whoever it was at the time. I think it could have. I think it could have worked as a satire. I don't think it would have worked more effectively as a commentary that Jewison was trying to make, though. Maybe not. Well, one scene you have, and this isn't a common way that black people were killed, but when the guy riding the bike, which is named Blue, gets burned alive. That was rough. That didn't happen to anybody else. The black guy had that happen to him. Yeah, what happens to the other guys is bad. Granted, getting bashed in the face, rabid punched, although Moon Pie doesn't die from that, but he's never going to wake up again. Yeah. But this black guy, I can't say he didn't do anything because they're all doing something by playing in the game, but burned alive? Ugh. Yeah, this movie does not shy away from some gruesome deaths, that's for sure. 1970s effects, mind you, but still, it doesn't shy away from them. A lot of blood in it, too. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Moon Pie being left brain dead in this movie from that rabbit punch. The reason I said, don't say it's not funny. There were a few moments in this movie where I legitimately laughed out loud. Okay. Unintentionally. One of them was when James Kahn's character has to go to the physician's office or whatever to sign the paperwork to, I guess, pull the plug on Moon Pie because yeah. he's declared brain dead. Because Moon Pie has no family. He's no family. So did they I, say that? Or we, he did. He said there's no family. So for some reason, it's not the team or the corporation. Maybe Moon Pie had a living will that named James Kahn's character. That as, must be it. Because you'd think the team would absolutely have. You would think so. The corporation or whatever would absolutely have power over him. In this world, you would think yeah. so. Yeah. Over all of them. So he goes in there, he's like, well, what is this? You want me to sign? Is he never going to wake up? They use some language that we wouldn't use anymore. I think if you called somebody a vegetable in 2023, that's very unkind. But the doctor in this 1975 movie does use that word and says, listen, he's a vegetable. He's never going to wake up. And then James Conn goes, well, you know, vegetables are plants, rather, are living things. They send stuff. Are you sure he doesn't know what's going on? And the doctor's just like, 
<laughs> Who can say? Here, sign this. And yeah, he was pretty rushed, wasn't he? He's <laughs> yeah. a busy doc. He's so flippant and rushed. What's that? Your friend's brain dead? Ah, who can say? Mm-hmm. Just sign this. And his performance cracked me up. I don't know what it was. Okay. Next way you could laugh at that. By the way, I just read yesterday yeah. that apparently, I don't know how they do this, but they found out that plants, when they don't get water and they're slowly, I guess, dying, yeah. scream. But we can never pick it up. What? I don't know how they recorded that. That is horrifying to know. They make us feel guilty about vegetables and plants and trees now as well. It's bad enough we feel guilty about hurting animals and killing them to eat. But now we got to worry about killing vegetables. I don't want to know that plants scream when they're in a dehydrated state. I just read it. I don't know if that's true, but hope it's not. To cleanse the palate of that horrifying thought, I'm just going to offer you two other scenes that made me laugh. These are non-sequiturs, anything we've really talked about. The first was, I think, the second rollerball match and it was after we heard about, I think this was the Tokyo team had a habit Tokyo, yeah. of using their motorcycle. They to play Madrid first, Tokyo in the middle, and New York and at New the York, end. Yeah. But in the briefing prior to that, I think they were talking about the Tokyo tactics. They like to like run over skaters on the opposition teams that are too good with the motorcycle. I think it's one of the Houston players is lying on the track, mm. and the motorcyclist runs him over, but in so doing, shoots himself into the crowd. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> it was such a self-own kind of yeah, moment right. that... You idiot. <laughs> he killed me. I think we're supposed to feel bad for the guy on the track, but I'm just watching this guy sail through the air into the crowd. And then the second, well, I guess it's the third moment's in sequence, but the other one I haven't touched on yet was during that last match when everything's going to hell, people are dying and stuff, and they send the medics onto the track, mm-hmm. and the motorcycle goes blasting through the stretcher or something that the two medics are carried between mm-hmm. them. The medic closest to the center of the track just spins on his heels and dashes back in like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> I would not go out there either. <laughs> so maybe Jewison was going for some comedy then. Yeah. Well, what do you think about the depiction of the sport, a made-up sport? It's a vicious version of Quidditch in a lot of ways too. Sure. And of course, roller derby became a real thing. Roller Jam was a show. Whip It, that Drew Barrymore movie. Whip It Good. But what did you think of the depiction? What they accomplished, what Jewison accomplished with whoever the writer was of that short story. Harrison. Yeah. Harrison. I think that is the most incredible element of this movie. That Very they, creative idea for a game. They created something out of whole cloth, made it as realistic and well thought out. Not only did people subsequently license it and do all the things you just described, you mentioned this earlier in the podcast already, they were apparently playing it on downtime, right? Yep. Internally. So it's a real fleshed out game and that's an accomplishment. How many times have we talked about movies that are depicting sports like bloody baseball those movies cannot coherently express the rules of such a well-known game. This movie, there were a few things I was hazy on, like exactly what caused a new ball to be shot out. Because there aren't that many goals. They call them goals, right? And also, if you drop the ball, can the other team just pick it up and then they go right right to the net? They have to circle, almost like in basketball when you play half court, you have to bring it past the three-point line. Usually, at least that's what I've always played. Check, the check up or whatever, yeah. I was never clear about that. Maybe they were saying in the voiceover and I just didn't notice what they were saying. No, they didn't. I had similar questions, especially in that first game when James Caan's team misses their goal attempt and he says something like, all right, we have to set up again or something. So I was thinking the same thing. Okay, do they have to go get the ball again, do another lap around before... Or does the other team get the ball at that point? It wasn't clear. Right. And can you put in a rebound? I don't think you can. I don't think you can. If either. you just miss and somebody's standing right there, I, think, I don't think you can, yeah. So anyway, these are like little bits of real-time play minutia that I guess is hard to sort out in advance. But because it's a whole cloth creation essentially for this movie. Or kudos, yeah. Kudos, That's yeah. well shot too, yeah. Half the movie maybe is the actual game being played. You get a lot of game action. Maybe not half, but I would say close to a third, I guess. Three games take up a lot of screen time. Just the last game itself, I checked this on the runtime, is at least 15 minutes long. Okay, is maybe just the last. The okay. Well, maybe not half. A good chunk of it anyway. Yeah. So Doesn't I thought it was good. As for can you score, well, there's some beautiful women in the cast and Con and Beck were hairy, handsome fellas. <laughs> 
But the lots of chest in this movie. <laughs> Mostly male chest, but lots of chest. Yes. The movie's so bleak and depressing that it's hard to be turned on. I wasn't. And for a movie that was so bleak and depressing, I think we get at least two or three shots of James Caan in bed with a woman mm-hmm. lying there post-coitus. James Caan's character apparently can score in this movie, but otherwise, I agree with you, not scorable. Mm-hmm. As for a score, I know I'll be higher than you, but I think this is out of respect way more than anything else. Sure. I'll give it 6.5, definitely a passing grade, mm. because it's well-made and because they knew what they were doing. The siren goes by. I tip my cap for the craft, but I don't think I'll see it a third time. I think the highest I would ever go with a movie like this is a five. Out of respect also, I guess, right? Exactly. For the creation of the game itself, for a lot of those technical elements that I think we both agree were done very well. From a technical perspective, the one thing I didn't really love was a lot of the scoring. The music cues I thought were a little heavy-handed, especially that sequence during the party after the first match is played when they're lingering around in tuxedos and stuff. It was a long stretch of 1980s porno-sounding music. It was very (laughs) strange. For all of the issues I've said I had with this movie, the most damning thing is exactly what you just said, is that I feel zero compulsion to ever watch this movie again. We've done it, though. Don't have to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And we're almost ending the podcast, too. That's right. So before we go, we'll tell you what I just said, that we are going to end this podcast on June 7th. That will be five years to the day we started it, which is why we're aiming for that Wednesday rather than the Thursday, which would normally be our day. We will have done 131 episodes by then, and Mm -hmm. that's a lot of sports movies. In fact, we just feel like that's enough of that. We've covered the best ones apart from Bull Durham, which I just found that you don't like. That's too strong. I don't like it as much as you like it. Okay, because I love it. The Hustler, we didn't cover that. A League of Their Own, the first Rocky, or the first Creed, because Bab and I covered all of those. That's we right. also deprived the Yankees on Have You Ever Seen. It was called then, the Top 100 Project. But you and I covered almost everything else. I would say everything else that really matters, especially from the whole point of the podcast. You asked me way back when to cover movies from our youth. More so yours, of course, but my youth still counts as the early 90s when you were about 10 or 12. For sure, yeah. And we did the best ones. We could do a lot of crap, or we could do really old movies that are supposedly great, but that's before either of us were even born, and that's not the point of the podcast. Exactly. So we're ending it on June the 7th. That means Scoring at the Movies has only two episodes left, and our penultimate episode on May 25th, we'll be talking about our very last baseball movie and the sixth and final Kevin Costner joint for Love of the Game, which I don't remember liking very much, but I haven't seen it in a very long time. And we'll have to pay for it, too, because I can't find that at the library either. I don't think I've ever seen it. I'm trying to remember if I did, because I was in prime Costner mode yeah. when this came out. You were 18. I've always been a big fan of Costner, even during the dud era of Costnerdom. Mm-hmm. I still enjoy it. Which was around now, the late 90s. Yeah. Nonetheless, I liked Waterworld as a stupid movie when it came out. I liked The Postman well enough, even speaking of post-apocalyptic dystopian stuff. But I have zero recollection of this movie. Like, or just like, you then. Yeah, maybe. So we're on Twitter. I'm at moviefiend51. Chris is at scoring at movies. So the at symbol, but then AT in the middle. Hope I explained that long ago, but people probably, I always put it on the description of the podcast anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they see it there. And the email is scoring at themovies at gmail.com. I'd say take her easy, Jonathan, but they're going to murder you now. So I hope you enjoyed scoring your last goal. Although I don't know for sure if I still believe they're going to murder him. I'm changing my view on that. Really? I'm just reading what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> if he slows down, they might run him down with a motorcycle. Skate, Jonathan, skate.